Well, thanks, everyone. It's great to see you here at church and good to know that there's a few joining us online as well. A uh, warm welcome from me to you this morning. Uh, this week, we're going to continue on with our series on God's big picture. Uh, we've been looking at the kingdom of God as a theme that starts in Genesis at the very beginning of the Bible. And we can trace that theme right the way through the whole history of the people of Israel into the present day. And this week, the waiting is over. What we've been waiting for for so long has finally arrived. Are you excited? Well, you should be. And I'm not talking about something as exciting as perhaps Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse, as good as that might be. I'm not talking about something as exciting as Origin. In fact, I'm kind of dreading State of Origin this week. I don't know about you. Any Queenslanders out there? I know there's a couple, yeah. But it's something even better than that. Now, there's a great philosopher from the 80s who said, the waiting is the hardest part. And you can give yourself a pat on the back if you know who this particular person is. But this week, we're talking about something even better. There's our great philosopher from the 80s. Uh, some of you might know who that is. But this week, we're talking about the kingdom of God. And that's the thing that is here. Uh, we've been talking about God's kingdom being perished back in Genesis 3. We've looked at how it was promised and prophesied. And now we're seeing God's kingdom in the present. So how about we pray as we look more into God's word? Uh, Father God, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you for Jesus and for the present kingdom that he has established. Father, we thank you that all of your promises find their yes in him. We pray, Lord, that by your spirit you'll help us to understand and to apply your word today. Amen. Well, today we're going to see how God establishes his kingdom through his promises, his prophet, and in the present. Well, firstly, we're going to see God's promises. Now, you've got to remember that from previous weeks, we've been doing this now seven weeks, uh, God's kingdom was partially established with the kings in the Old Testament. And we've got people like King David, who are sort of the pinnacle. David and Solomon, really the best of the kings. The kingdom was really at its high point there. Uh, but that was not the full fulfillment because, as we saw in previous weeks, uh, things don't go very well. Uh, of course, that's not the end of the story. God doesn't give up on the people after they rebel, after they ignore him. And uh, we see this pattern of God establishing things, making promises. Things are going up and up and up, but of course, what goes up must come down. And this week, we're going to see that God hasn't forgotten his people even after the exile, once they've been sent out of the promised land for their disobedience, God doesn't give up on them. We're going to see that God has not forgotten his people. In fact, he intends to keep all of those promises that he made right from the get-go, even as far back as Genesis. So have a look with me at Luke chapter 1, verses 67 and 68. We're going to see that God has kept his promises once again. Now, this is Zechariah, a priest in the temple, father of a guy who will later be known as John the Baptist. And as he's filled with the Holy Spirit, he prophesies about what this son, John, will accomplish. Now, it's not that John himself brings the kingdom, but John is a herald of what is about to happen. He's preparing the way for God to establish his kingdom in the present. 
So let's look at verses 67 and 68. Uh, it says here that Zechariah is praising God because God has redeemed his people. Uh, a bit like the time in the Exodus. It's the same kind of idea, the same word. God is redeeming his people once again, taking them out of slavery into freedom so that they can worship him. Now, for those of us who would know all the history of Israel, we should be thinking, if God is going to do that again, then maybe, just like he did the first time around, he could be just about to make a new covenant with his people, just like he did in Exodus. Saved his people, brought them out of slavery, got them to worship him and made a new covenant with them. So we should be thinking that's what he'll do again. In verses 69 and 70, uh, Zechariah continues praising God because God has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David, as he promised. So this idea of a horn of salvation is a symbol of power, a new king, somebody with great power and authority to rule God's people is coming. And we should be thinking again, could this be just like the Old Testament? Could it be that God will establish his kingdom here on earth with a powerful king, a bit like David? A bit like God keeping his promises to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Could it be that that is about to happen? And the reason we move on to the next verse is then, uh, Zechariah continues to use very similar language to what's found in the Old Testament. Uh, he's continuing to praise God for all that God has done for his people. Uh, God remembered his covenant, uh, both to Abraham and to David. There's this continuation. This is not God doing something completely different. It's not as if God says, well, oh, tried plan A, it didn't work. Maybe I'm going to try plan B. No, no, Zechariah understands that this is the fulfillment of God's promises that he made in the Old Testament. Something monumental is about to happen. God is about to keep all those promises, remembering his covenant, remembering that in Abraham all nations would be blessed through him, remembering his covenant with David that one of his descendants would always be sitting on the throne ruling God's people. So we're about to see how this small little baby at the moment, Zechariah's son John, is going to play a part in all this. In fact, it all hinges on some degree to this new baby that Zechariah speaks of, the boy who will be John the Baptist. Why? Because John is the prophet God will use. If we see in verses 75 to 80, God is going to establish his kingdom with this child who will later be John the Baptist. And why is that important? Well, Zechariah says that this boy will grow to be a prophet of the Most High. Now, I know what you're thinking. Wow, it's been 400 years since we had a prophet. I know that's what you were thinking. That is what you were thinking, isn't it? All right. That, well, that's what you should be thinking, because it has been 400 years since Israel had a prophet. Uh, now, we think that it's a pretty straightforward thing, isn't it? You know, we turn in our Bibles from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the very end of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, we just turn one page and, hey, presto, now we're in the New Testament. Pretty quick, isn't it? 
But in reality, it took 400 years to get from the end of the Old Testament to what we're reading here in Luke's Gospel. So yes, this is a big deal. The first prophet in 400 years. This is significant and John is going to play a role in preparing God's people for God to come. That's his role. Uh, And I know what else you're thinking. You're thinking, why is there an Old Testament prophet in the New Testament? I thought Luke's gospel was the New Testament. I thought we'd turned the page over and now we're in the New Testament. How is it that God is using an Old Testament prophet in the book of Luke, which is in the New Testament? Well, that's an excellent question. I'm glad you asked me that too. Well, the reason is that God hasn't yet established his new covenant. In fact, the word that we use, testament, could be translated as covenant. So here, God's people are still operating in the old covenant that he made with Moses. God's people are not yet in the new covenant. It's coming, and it will come with Jesus, but they're not there yet. If you look on the slide there, you'll see that some Bibles have a little page that's dedicated to announcing that you're now in the New Testament. You turn the page and instead of reading Matthew's Gospel, you get this one individual page that just says, the New Testament. I just think that that page is probably in the wrong spot because you're not yet technically in the New Covenant just now. But it's coming and it will come because God is merciful. That is what we read in verse 78. Uh, At this point in the Old Covenant, we still get an Old Testament prophet because it's still the Old Testament, in a matter of speaking. So why is God using this guy? Well, to keep his promises. Uh, God has promised in the prophets that there would be another prophet who will prepare the way for the Lord. And that is all by the tender mercy of God. God's not obliged to do this. God is not there saying, well, Israel have ticked all the right boxes. They're doing great. I think they deserve a reward for all their obedience. That's quite the opposite. Their history has shown us time and time again, they don't obey God. They don't serve him as they should. They don't keep their end of the deal. They don't worship God. They don't keep his covenant, yet God is merciful. He loves his people so much that he will send them another prophet, John, to prepare the way for the Lord. And Zechariah mentions that this idea of a a light will shine on those who live in darkness. And this is a direct reference back to another Old Testament passage from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, where God is promising once again to shine a light on the people uh, as if the sun has risen and now shines on all people everywhere. God is about to act to reverse the fortunes of Israel and it will be obvious to all in the same way as the sunrise is. Uh, You can tell the difference between darkness and light. You can see the difference. It's the difference between night and day. And God is about to do that for his people using the prophet John 
who prepares the way, not just for some other king, not just for some other prophet, but for the Lord to come himself. God is keeping his promises with a prophet to establish his kingdom in the present. So John, as we know, prepares the way for who? For Jesus. And if we read the other gospel accounts of who Jesus is and what he does, uh, we'll read in Mark chapter 1 that there's a quote, again, from the book of Isaiah, another Old Testament prophet. Uh, John is the voice of one in the wilderness crying out uh, that God is about to act. God will do something. He will do something amazing. And again, we're getting another quote from the book of Malachi. In Malachi, there's a promise of a messenger who will bring a new covenant, a new God-acting human kind of guy who's also a saviour, who's also God himself. There's all these threads that are throughout the Old Testament that are drawn together in Christ. The whole of God's kingdom being established comes together in Christ. This time, God's kingdom won't be ruled over by just any old human being, but instead God will keep his promises as he did make to the Old Testament prophets and all of the promises hinge on Jesus. As you see here, Mark in particular understands that very well. Mark is making the case that Jesus fulfills these Old Testament promises. Everything about God's promises to his people in the past is fulfilled in the present by Jesus. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says, Every promise of our God finds its yes in his own son, Jesus. And Dave mentioned that in our kids' talk. But how? How is it that Jesus fulfills all of this? How is it that he can do everything? How is it that every promise finds its yes in him? Well, as we know about the pattern of God's kingdom, we've seen how God has a people in a place under his rule and blessing. And the reason that Jesus can fulfill all these promises is because Jesus is all of those things. He is God's people, he is God's place, and he lives under God's rule. In fact, Jesus is the new Israel, the new way in which God will show the world what he's like. Well, bear with me. Jesus is God's people. In the Old Testament, God had a nation of Israel. Uh, in the New Testament, Jesus is that Israel. Think about the events of Jesus' early life and ministry. Jesus is born in the land of Israel. He flees to Egypt, and then he comes back again. Now then, he grows up in Galilee. He's baptized in the Jordan River, comes back out of the water to the promised land where he is tested in the wilderness, not for 40 years like Israel, but for 40 days. Then he starts his ministry and he chooses some disciples. How many? Twelve. 
Why? Because there's 12 tribes in Israel and Jesus is making the case that he is making a new Israel. He's making a new people of God centred on him. And it's not just the events of Exodus that Jesus fulfills. Throughout his teaching, he makes allusions to all sorts of other stuff in the Old Testament. Now, one example is in John chapter 15, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Now, if ever you've read anything in the Old Testament about uh, God's vineyard, particularly in Isaiah chapter 5, you'll know that that's Israel. Israel is God's vineyard and they are the vine. And Jesus says, no, no, I am the vine and you are the branches. Jesus is again making the case that he is the new Israel. Jesus is the people of God in the present. But Jesus is also God's place, the location where people will meet God. And so consider the role of the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament. Uh, It was where God's spirit dwelt, and it's the kind of place where people would go to meet God, to offer sacrifices to him and to pray. Now consider what John chapter 1 says, that God made his dwelling, literally in the original language, he tabernacled among us. That's Jesus. Jesus is the tabernacle in the present. In Ezekiel chapter 47, Ezekiel has this vision of streams of water coming out of the temple in all four cardinal directions, filling the whole land with water. Would have looked a bit like the MIA. Then in John chapter 7, what does Jesus say? Jesus says, those who follow him, those who trust in him, will have streams of water flowing out from them. Jesus is the new temple. Again, John chapter 2, Jesus has this altercation with the people and they ask him, by what authority do you do these miracles? And Jesus says, well, here, I'll give you a sign. I'll destroy the temple and in three days, what will I do? Rebuild it. And they think he's talking about the building, the temple, and they complain, oh, it's taken us years to build this thing. How could you do that? But what they didn't know is Jesus is talking about his body. Jesus is making the case that he is the temple. And so Jesus is God's people. Jesus is God's place. And Jesus has God's rule and blessing perfectly. Uh, Jesus has brought God's kingdom to the present because he's perfectly obedient to God. Unlike Israel in the Old Testament, who are forever going astray, Jesus never does. Uh, Paul in Philippians 2 says that Jesus is obedient to God even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Uh, Jesus has completely and utterly, perfectly, faithfully served God all his life. He resists the devil in the wilderness. He doesn't sin. He doesn't give in to temptation. He only ever lives under God's rule perfectly. And therefore, what happens after his death, God exalted him to the highest place through resurrection and ascension. The whole story of the gospel is there in Philippians 2, that Jesus faithfully, obediently lived under God's rule and after his death he is raised to new life, vindicated and risen 
up to heaven, ascended there into the highest place. So friends, yes, every promise of our God finds their yes in Jesus because he faithfully fulfills all of these parts to the kingdom in the present. He is God's people, he is God's place, and he lives under God's rule and blessing. But you might be wondering, well, hang on, if the kingdom is here in the present, why is everything still so messed up? Why is there still sickness, sin, suffering, and death? Surely if God's kingdom has come to earth in the present, there won't be any of that. Well, that is the hope. That is the promise that God has made. But even though God's kingdom is here now in the present, there is still more to come. Uh, God's kingdom has been established, yes, but not completely fulfilled. Uh, The kingdom is what we might call inaugurated. It's started, it's here, but not everything about God's promises has been fulfilled yet. But what we do know is that Jesus in his first coming has fulfilled everything that we need now to be saved, to be part of God's kingdom ourselves. And so we know that at his second coming, he'll put everything else together. Everything will be put right that we have put wrong. God never gave up on his people before, and he's not about to give up on us yet. So even though we're waiting for the kingdom to come in all of its fullness, uh, we're still a bit like that 1980s band is says the waiting is the hardest part. And it is hard because we know what is yet to come and we're waiting, longing for that to happen. But there's still two more weeks in our series and we're going to see how God's kingdom will progress from the present to the future. But until we get to that point, we just have to wait. So let's pray and ask God to help us to wait well. Uh, Father God, we thank you that in your word we have the promises that you've made. Thank you that every good and perfect gift comes from you. And we pray, Lord, that as we wait for Jesus, we'll wait well. Help us, Lord, to be still waiting faithfully on the day that Jesus returns. And we pray this in his name. Amen.